we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Welcome to What in the NDIS podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Carly Anderson to talk with us today a bit about accessing the NDIS. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you going? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Good. <laughs> so um, you work primarily in the mental health space. Yes. Um, and so can you give us some of your top tips for filling in an access request form? Definitely kind of writing down a list of, of who the people that can write supporting evidence for yeah and getting that prepared um how do you go with explaining getting access to doctors oh (laughs) well you have to explain a lot apparently Mm. um yeah i mean you've got the access request form um it's pretty standard uh we also use the psychosocial evidence form so there's kind of just walking them through it um yeah (laughs) yeah so I find a lot of doctors and like psychiatrists or you know a neurologist or some sort of some specialists that we often come across you know don't even know what the NDIS is Mm. and that blows my mind because I'm like well it's kind of been out for 10 years already (laughs) and it was talked about for many years before that so how do you not know that this exists like what sort of bubble are you living in (laughs) no I I know exactly what you mean (laughs) I have to often explain to doctors exactly what NDIS is and what qualify somebody for NDIS um, because when it comes to mental health, there are now really specific things that qualify people to be on the NDIS and um, it changes kind of all the time. Uh, as we know, their NDIS is a bit over budget and so they're really, really tightening up um, what they're doing now and changing things so that it kind of excludes certain things. Um, for instance, I used to be able to get people with BPD over the line if they've been treated quite well. That is very difficult to do now. Um, it's mostly thought disorders under the mental health sector. Um, it's even more tight with physical health. And I have to often describe to people like psychiatrists and doctors that Somebody with diabetes is not going to get over the line with just diabetes. Um, There really has to be a lot of treatment involved and, like, severe impairment under the medical kind of side of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 
part of having this podcast was is because things change mm. all the time and we're having to keep up with it and it it almost feels like you're running a race and they keep moving where the line is mm-hmm. or the goalposts, mm-hmm. depending on what sport you play. <laughs> <laughs> They're moving it <laughs> and and you don't know the rules mm. and you're like, hang on a second, I've been doing this for ages mm. and I, I still don't know. I'm still confused. Yeah. So um, when you say thought disorders are more getting across the line. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of those diagnoses that you're seeing getting across the line? Schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, um, sometimes BPAD if it's it's been treated consistently for a long period of time, um, those types of things. Uh, Yeah, it's it's getting very difficult. Even even with that being said... um, just recently, I had a client who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia in the 90s, didn't make it across the line. So I had to go back over, um, have the doctor change a couple of things because I think one of the things she put in there was that early interventions would make a difference with this. And clearly, you being that he was diagnosed in the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, early we're well and truly past early intervention. Yes. So I had to bring this back to the to the doctor and say, look, we need this change, and this is why. Um, I put in more evidence, so I did a letter myself instead of just the psychosocial evidence form. Um, I also had his mom do the carers statement, um, which I think made a, f- a fairly big difference. And he is now set to do his planning meeting. So. Yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting point, a carer's statement. Yes. What sorts of things do you look for or encourage people to write in a carer's statement? Um, it really kind of depends, but it's, it's mostly around um, what that person does for the person they care for on a daily basis and how often it's done um, and what would happen if... You, they weren't around because, as we all know, like people aren't around forever. Um, so that's why we get the NDIS. Uh, so, yeah, we try to look at those types of things. Yeah. There's correct. a lot of really good um, questionnaires and stuff, too, as well. On If you just Google CARES statement, they have, like, a step-by-step kind of thing. So I often bring that and just fill it in. Oh, that's a really good tip. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Makes my job easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think anything that makes it easier to apply because it is a bit of a process. Mm. So I know when I support people to get access, you've kind of, yeah, you've got to start with what is the supporting evidence we've got. What do we need to get? Who are we going to get to fill in the access request form? Mm. Because also who fills it in makes a big difference because your general GP is is good as a last resort, Mm. 
at the NDIS don't really like your GP. (laughs) They more so want, you know, specialists like psychiatrists and stuff. So my first go-to is a psychiatrist. Um, If they have a case manager, I'll have the case manager fill something out as well. Um, If the GP has um, covered their mental health at all, then I'll have the GP do a letter as well. Yeah. And those are kind of your main um, clinical area so like the section a and then you've got section b so that's people like me um who do the the kind of support work case management type things on a non-clinical side um psychologists that aren't clinical that type of thing care statements all that yeah yeah Yeah. and sometimes one of the things i've done is sort of um given doctors a bit of a cheat sheet to sort mm. of say these are the sorts of things you need to kind of write in to yes, the exactly. access request yeah. form. <laughs> <laughs> kind of need to. I write notes on the access request form all the time, like little sticky notes. Yeah. Say this is what this needs to say and this is why. Um, yeah. It seems to be, you know, pretty helpful when it comes down to it. Yeah. Do you ever have any specialists or doctors who just go, no, I don't have time to do that? I recently had one um, and it was a psychiatrist under case management kind of area who refused to do a letter um, because the client had autism and that's what the main diagnosis was. Um, And then they exited the client as well. Um, That client ended up going needing more help and um got another case manager and the new psychiatrist said yep that's fine i will do it yeah um i am finding ot's to be a really something that the ndis is really looking at right now they really take that into into consideration so if you can get an ot (laughs) i think the ot's are the bee's knees yes (laughs) (laughs) um so one of the things i find really hard then with with getting OT reports in particular is is the cost. Yes, so expensive. And people with disabilities often are not working, sometimes have the disability support pension. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time they don't. Um, and they just don't have the money for these reports. Yeah. And yet this is what the NDIS wants. Mm. And you can't get on the NDIS without this report, but you also can't afford to get this report. Yeah. And it feels sometimes like a giant puzzle that no one can quite put together. And so, like, what do you try to do in those instances? Um. So... A couple of examples, I've had clients that are aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. Mm-hmm. At six has an OT. She's fantastic in our area. Um, so they can access it with no cost. So if you're aboriginal Torres Strait Islander or family of aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, you might be having access to that. Um, I, the same client with autism went and got a report. It was OT style kind of report from a psychologist um, that was training. So that was lower cost because it was, you know, a student with um, supervision put in place as well. So that was a bit lower cost. Otherwise, honestly, sometimes I just try to get them across the line and then suggest an OT so that that can be um, 
once they're on the NDIS, they can get an OT to say, this person needs this, and this is why, and how, you know, all the fun stuff that follows that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And definitely often from a support coordination perspective, that tends to be like the first thing mm. we kind of do because um, if there hasn't been an OT report previously, also they just won't be funded very well. Yes. And so we go, oh, this, what the heck is this funding? This isn't enough funding to do anything. Mm. And so, you know, we go and get an OT report and then put in a change of situation and get more funding. But um, I think getting onto the NDIS is made in the first place is is made very tricky for it is. like good reason. Yeah. I think there is a good reason to restrict it a bit, but there's times when you absolutely know this person needs the support mm. and it's it can be you're like pulling your hair out going, why is it denied? Yeah. What is happening yeah. here? Um, the other thing I think like one of the things I find is um, the the questions on the access request form trick yes. or trip up. Yes, they do. <laughs> doctors who are very smart people. Hence my sticky notes. <laughs> but but also don't understand what exactly the NDIS are looking for. Yes, and so things like um. You have to say that they've exhausted all the treatment options. Yes. And <laughs> this is as good as this person is getting. And it's likely to be lifelong. Yes. 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 Mm. And you can't say that early intervention would be helpful because <laughs> by the time that they've come to us, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in your line of work. We've been there like, early. <laughs> that ship has well and truly yes. sailed. <laughs> this is not early intervention time. Um, if there had been an early intervention potentially that would have been good but actually early intervention for adults kind of doesn't exist Mm. i know exactly and by the time they come to me you know we're we're well and truly past this and and um yeah 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 so you um mostly are getting people when they've come out of hospital yes or case managed by Queensland Health. So okay. it's people that are living with mental health in the community um, yep. and it's to help with recidivism back into the hospital. So we're trying to keep people out of the hospital and independent as possible with their mental health. Yeah. 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 So when, say, for example, you see someone and um, you can sort of tell already that maybe they're just not going to qualify for the NDIS. What other avenues do you have to sort of get them support? Uh, A go-to would be QCSS. It is a bit of a cost, um, but it's fairly inexpensive. And they offer usually up to five hours a week, depending on, you know, what you qualify for. Um, They come in and, like, help people clean their houses um, or take them out to go for a coffee, do some social stuff, take them out to go grocery shopping, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, 
also there's lots of different kind of avenues that are similar to us. We're not um, ongoing. We're up to a year. Um, so we'll link them in with other places like Stride or Brook Red, like a drop-in center, you know, kind of anything that they really kind of need at the moment. Um, yeah. We'll just link them in with whatever services. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really handy information for us in Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> if you're hearing this from the rest of Australia, sorry. <laughs> we don't know what's happening in the rest of Australia. We're just in Queensland. Yeah. Um, but that is super interesting. I think it's really important that people do understand that part of when the government brought out the NDIS, it was still the states had to remain giving some support to people who don't qualify for the NDIS. So it's really important that you find that in, in your state or in your area um, to find those mainstream supports because they do exist. Yes. They can be hard to find. Yes, they can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about you. What would you like to know? <laughs> Where where did you grow up? I'm from Minnesota, um, northern Minnesota, Duluth, uh, right on the biggest lake in the world. That's a long way from Brisbane, it Queensland. <laughs> so what brought you here? Uh, my wife lives here. Uh -huh. So, yes. How love. exciting. <laughs> love. <laughs> love. Brings As most people to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and what, what got you into sort of the disability mental health space? Oh man. Okay. So it's quite a long time ago. I've been in it for about 16 years. So when I first got into it, my twin sister was working at a group home, um, and she was moving to Arizona and so I like to joke that they traded one twin for the other. Um, I, I applied and they took me in and I was there for in total over eight years. Um, kind of left in between and was a corrections officer for about seven months. Um, did not like not being able to help people. So went back. Uh, and then after that, I met my wife and yeah, it's been, it's been interesting since then. Um, I came here for three months. We got a civil union, um, and then I went back and lived with my mom in Oklahoma, and I worked at a restaurant and a child psych ward for about three, three, four months, um, and then I came back here, and I've been in community uh, working with you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> my first job. Um, and, you know, with the FAMS program, and, yeah, um, and then I've been at my current job. Yeah. Yeah. So community outreach since I've been here. Yeah. 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 I think um, that's really cool. Um, it's such a variety of jobs and I actually think that having a variety of jobs is sometimes overlooked as a really good asset for people who work in the disabilities sector. A hundred percent. Because you've got to have life experience mm. and other other sorts of jobs and things that you've done that can 
you can bring to the disability sector because the people like everyone we work with is is a human you know and we're all humans (laughs) and so the humans, you know, that we work with will have loads of different experiences and, and people they've met in their life as well. Exactly. And probably lots of different jobs as well. Yeah. You know, like I, my f- first job was at Officeworks and so when people talk to me about working in retail, I know exactly what that's like yeah. and it's freaking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. I did things before mental health. I worked at McDonald's for way too long. Uh, and worked at a place called Menards, which is essentially Bunnings. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I know about that kind of stuff as well. Oh, nice. Yes. It's very quite a bit. But yes, it's, it's big on um, gaining rapport with clients as well, um, mm. when you can kind of relate to some of these things. Um, and you know, sometimes you get a bit of respect because you've worked, you know, in the, um, sheriff's department and that kind of thing as well. Um, can people know how that is and how hard it can be? And yeah. Yeah. It's been helpful, I think. And behavioral working, you know, eight, 10 years in behavioral was helpful kind of in all aspects, really. Yeah. Um, it makes it very easy for me to kind of see what my clients mood is that day and how to, you know, relate to them in that way and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And also wrangle your many cats. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So how many cats exactly do you have? Four. (laughs) I only wanted two. (laughs) But you're a sucker when you do do fostering for cats and you can't just leave them. I can't. The new thing is a dog. Now we're on to dogs. And <laughs> oh, no. I haven't gotten one yet, but I'm wanting to foster dogs apparently now. You don't um, have a big enough backyard. How are you going to do that? That's what I thought. Yeah, well, you know, the wife, she's... <laughs> she's surrounded in it when she's volunteering. <laughs> and they know she's a sucker, so... That's how we end up with very sick cats all the time um, yeah. to foster, so, yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a fun time that's for sure yeah but I think it's super interesting that you do foster cats slash animals (laughs) um because I think you know having it's also really important in this line of work to have like something else that you do yeah because if you focus solely on mental health or hitting your head against the brick wall of the NDIS (laughs) because you can't get people through, Mm -hmm. um, you start to lose your mind. It's a a bit of self-care, isn't it? Yes. I always push that to everybody. When you work in mental health, you need to self-care because it can be very draining. Yes. Yes. And so what you... Have you got other hobbies? Uh, I sew and, um, like, knit or that kind of thing. Um, Talking about getting into softball. Softball? Uh, Well, I used to play all the time when I was younger. Um, But, yeah, I I work with an American guy as well, and he's interested in doing softball. So now we're talking about doing that. Interesting. (laughs) And, you know, exercise where you can and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I think... 
exercise is good because it gets oh, it's massive. everything flowing. Yeah, and it boosts your serotonin levels and, you know, all the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, even just walking. Like, it's not yeah. like we're not talking about heavy exercise. No. Just even just something really just simple. Go for like a 15, 20-minute walk every day. You're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, is there anything more you'd like to talk about with the NDIS? Actually, I was bookmarking something because I was going to comment on it um, with the diagnosis and stuff. We are finding if people are putting PTSD as the main diagnosis and they've been treated quite extensively, that one is getting across the line as well. I'm so glad because PTSD is... It's huge. Often really misunderstood as well. Yeah. So that that is great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And it's so common too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I like to say I've, you probably have a little bit of PTSD, at least hypervigilance from some of the jobs that I've done. Um, <laughs> but, yes, it's uh, it's very common, more common than people think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. That's a really good one. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. And for coming all the way to my house (laughs) to do this. I really, really appreciate it. I had fun. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at whatinthendispod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au. And to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.